Thank you for downloading this episode of our podcast. Hi, and welcome to the podcast for Solomon Staircase Masonic Lodge number 357, where we talk about all things related with Freemasonry, including Hermetic teachings, philosophy, reason, spirituality, and much more. We're located in Buena Park, Southern California. Tune in as we continue to update our podcast with informative talks and articles for Masons worldwide and those who would like to inquire within. All right, here we go on round two, reading Mackey's Revised History of Freemasonry by Robert Ingham Clegg. And so today we are going to read through the introduction. So last episode, we covered just the preface. We planned the revision of this book to be thoroughly correct and complete. Nothing has been allowed to interfere with our plans. Not a single statement of the old book escaped attention, and every obtainable means of cooperation was invited and employed to the end that in all particulars the finished work should be reliably sound and humanly perfect. Distance nor any other difficulty prevented our use of assistance in all parts of the world. Letters innumerable freely found the Masonic Brotherhood of students everywhere willing and even eager to do all that could be done far and near to clear up the historical records for us. For example, the Grand Orient and the Grand Lodges of France officially examined the chapters dealing with Freemasonry in that country and contributed additional information of most valuable character. Past Grand Master Will H. White personally checked over the history of Freemasonry in Canada, a chapter originally written by him, and pronounced the revised essay to be in every way as excellent as it was concise, a compact and accurate collection of facts. In this spirit, the entire work has been performed, and we can place it with confidence in the hands of the craft, knowing they may rely upon it to the utmost. Not a chapter has been given a place unless we were all convinced that the facts it presented were truthful as well as instructive. But everyone will have his preference in taking up the reading of these chapters. Tastes differ in literature for the mind as much as they do in food for the body. Therefore, we urge the reader to follow Brother Clegg's suggestion and skip freely on the first examination of the book. Our own choice for a start would be chapter 90 for a most interesting grasp of what is known of the earliest introduction of Freemasonry into North America. Then we would read chapter 80 for a better understanding of the third degree. Afterwards, we would examine chapter 45 for a clear and concise survey of Freemasonry in the making. This is but a hint based on our own habits of reading, and it is not intended as a chart to be followed by everybody. Other readers, after consulting the general index at the end of the last volume, might go differently about getting the information from the book. Each will have his own choice, and no matter what his direction, he can but find a storehouse of knowledge gathered judiciously through long years, the patiently earnest labor of many ably devoted to the edification of the craft. We were not content to stop with giving the editorial work of the revised book all the care that could be put into its perfection. The type, the binding, and the paper have all had the most thorough study. Type was selected to furnish a compact and clear appeal to the eye, suitable at once to the page dimensions and the paper texture, and of the best reading qualities. A special pains were taken to make the binding of dignified and truly symbolic style, not a solitary line of the artist's work failing to have every supervision to ensure Masonic merit as well as accuracy of the highest quality. The initials for the chapters were also specially designed and cast for the book. In fact, nothing is lacking to make the work worthy in every way of the great institution of Freemasonry. We are most willing to confer with the readers of this book. 
we shall be ever disposed to offer our services in any way whereby they may obtain the store of information in the best manner possible. We aim at making well-informed Master Masons, and shall cheerfully respond to every call upon us. Ours is an educational organization, and we endeavor to keep it functioning effectively. Knowing that this magnificent work is both as correct and complete as human effort may expect it to be, we trust the splendid collection of facts will be put to use, and no effort will be lacking on our part to the end. The Masonic History Company. And if I hadn't said it before, this is from the 1921 um, edition of this book. And so we move on with Chapter 1, Prehistoric Masonry. And we're going to start with Tradition and History in Masonry. In the study of Freemasonry, there are two kinds of statements presented to the mind of the student. These are sometimes in agreement, but much oftener conflicting in their, in their character. These are the historical and the traditional, each of which belongs to Freemasonry, but each considers it from a different angle. The historical statement relates to the institution as we look at it from an exoteric or public point of view. The traditional refers only to its esoteric or secret character. So long as its traditional legends are confined to the ritual of the order, they are not fit subjects of historical inquiry. They have been invented by the makers of the rituals for symbolic purposes connected with the forms of initiation. Out of these myths of speculative masonry, its philosophy has developed. As they are really to be considered as merely the expansion of a philosophic or speculative idea, they cannot properly be placed in the class of recorded events or historical narratives. But in the published works of those who have written on the origin and progress of masonry, the legendary or traditional has been mingled too much with the historical element. The effect of this course has been, on critical minds, to weaken all claims of the institution to an historical existence. The doctrine of false in one thing, false in all, has been rigidly applied, and those statements of the Masonic historian which are fully reliable have been doubted or rejected because in other portions of his work he has been too easily deceived. Borrowing the technical language of science, we may say that the history of Freemasonry may be divided into two periods, the prehistoric and the historic. The former is traditional, the latter is based on documents. Each of these divisions must, in any historical inquiry, be clearly defined. There is also another division into esoteric and exoteric history. Footnote, esoteric and exoteric are words commonly used among Freemasons. Esoteric means secret to all but the initiated, and exoteric refers to the public and the published. End footnote. The first is entirely within the tiled area of the order, and cannot be the subject of ordinary historical methods. The second properly comes within the sphere of historical study and is subject to all the laws of historical criticism. When we are treating a Freemasonry as one of the social organizations of the world, as one of those institutions resulting from civilization and which have sprung up in the progress of society, and finally, when we are considering what are the influences that the varying conditions of that society have produced upon it, and what influences it has in turn produced upon these changing conditions, we are then engaged in the solution of a historical problem, and we must pursue the inquiry by historical method and not otherwise. We must discard all speculation because history deals only with the facts. If we were treating the history of a nation, we should assert nothing of it as historical that could not be traced to and be tested by written records. 
all that is guessed of the events that may have occurred in the earlier period of such a nation, of which there is no record dating from or near that time, is properly thrown into the dim era of the prehistoric age. It forms no part of the genuine history of that nation, and can be dignified at its highest value with the title of historical speculation only, claiming no other confidence than that which is seeming truth or its likelihood commands. Now, the possibility or the probability that a certain event may have occurred in the early days of a nation's existence, but of which event there is no record, will be great or little as dependent on certain other events which bear upon it, and which come within the era of its records. The event may have been possible, but not probable, and then but very little or no importance would be attached to it, and it would at once be put in the class of myths. Or it may have been both possible and highly probable, and we may then be permitted to speculate upon it as something that had exerted an influence upon the early character or the later progress of the nation. But even then, it would not cease to be a myth. Whatever we might assert of it would only be a guess. It would not be history, for that deals not in what may have been, but only of that which actually has been. The progress in these latter days of what are called the exact sciences has led by the force of example and comparison to a more critical examination of the facts, or rather, the so-called facts of history. Voltaire said in his Life of Charles XII of Sweden that incredulity is the foundation of history. Years passed before that rule and all its force was accepted by the learned, but at length it has been adopted as the guide of all historical criticism. To be easily deceived is to be unphilosophical, and scholars accept nothing as history that cannot be proved with almost mathematical certainty. Niebuhr, the historian, began by shattering all faith in the story of Rhea Silvia, of Romulus and Remus, and of their wolf mother. These curious stories, with many other incidents of the early Roman annals, were classified by him as myths. In later times, the patriotic heart of Switzerland has been made to mourn by the discovery that the story of William Tell and of the apple which he shot from the head of his son is nothing but fiction, a fable of the Middle Ages and found in a great many countries, and the circumstances of which, everywhere varying in details, still point to a common origin in some early symbolic myth. It is thus that many narratives, once accepted as truthful, have been, by careful study, removed from the domain of history, and such works as Goldsmith's Histories of Greece and Rome are no longer deemed fitting textbooks for schools where nothing but truth should be taught. The same rules of examination which are pursued in the separation of what is true from what is false in the history of a nation should be applied in finding the character of all statements in Masonic history. However, this course has unhappily not been generally pursued. Many of its legends are really founded, as we shall endeavor to show, on a historical basis. Quite as many, if not more, are made up out of a mixture of truth and fiction, the boundaries of each being difficult to define. A still greater number are myths which, with no appreciable element of truth in their composition. Yet, for nearly two centuries, all of these three classes of Masonic legendary information have been accepted by the great body of the fraternity as equally faithful accounts of undoubted truthfulness. It is by liberally accepting the false for the true, fables as authentic narratives, that imaginative writers have been encouraged to plunge into the realms of absurdity instead of confining themselves to the field of legitimate history, that has cast an air of romance over much that has hitherto been written about Freemasonry. Unjustly, but very naturally, scholars have been inclined to reject all our legends in every part as beyond belief, because they found in some the elements of fiction. 
But on the other hand, contradictions of legend makers and the ready belief of legend readers have, by a healthy reaction, given rise to a school of critics which sprang up from a praiseworthy desire to shape the principles governing all investigations into Masonic history to the rules which control profane writers in the examination of the history of nations. As examples of the legends of masonry that have tempted the belief of many and excited the doubts of others, those almost universally accepted legends may be cited which trace the organization of Freemasonry in its present form to the time of King Solomon's Temple. The story of Prince Edwin and the Grand Lodge congregated by him at the city of York in the 10th century, and the theory that the three symbolic degrees were instituted as Masonic grades at a period very long before the beginning of the 18th century. These statements, still believed in by all Masons who have not made the history of the Order in a special study, were, until recently, received by prominent scholars as true. Even Dr. Oliver, one of the most learned as well as the most abundant of Masonic authors, has in his numerous works recognized them as historic truths without a word of protest or a sign of doubt, except perhaps with reference to the third legend above mentioned, in which he says, with a cautious exception, that he has some doubts whether the master's degree, as now given, can be traced three centuries backwards. Footnote, Dissertation on the State of Masonry in the 18th Century. End footnote. But now there is a school of Masonic students to whom, borrowing a word formerly used in the history of religious strifes, has been given the name of iconoclasts. The word is a good one. The old iconoclasts, or image breakers of the 8th century, demolished the images and defaced the pictures which they found in the churches. This they did through mistaken but earnest views, because they thought that the people were taking the shadow for the substance and were worshipping the image or the picture instead of the divine being thus represented. And so these Masonic iconoclasts, with better views, are destroying, by hard, cutting criticism, the intellectual images which the old, unlettered Masons had constructed for their veneration. They are pulling to pieces the myths and legends whose errors and absurdities so long cast a cloud upon what ought to be the clear sky of Masonic history. But they have tempered their zeal with a knowledge and a moderation that were unknown to the iconoclasts of religion. These shattered the images and scattered the fragments to the four winds of heaven, or they burnt the picture so that not even a remnant of the canvas was left. Whatever there was of beauty in the work of the sculptor or painter was forever destroyed. Every sentiment of art culture was overcome by the bitterness of religious bigots. Had the destructive labors of these iconoclasts been everywhere and long continued, no foundation would have been left for building that science of Christian symbolism, which in this day has been so interesting and so instructive to the student of ancient remains and records. Footnote. Thus the Emperor Leo, the Isaurian, caused all images and pictures to be removed from the churches and publicly burnt, an act of brutish folly not surpassed by that Saracen despot who, if the story be true, ignorantly committed the books of the Alexandrian library to the flames as fuel for the public baths. End footnote. Not so have the Masonic iconoclasts performed their task of critical reform. They have shattered nothing. They have destroyed nothing. When in the course of their investigations into true Masonic history they encounter a myth or a legend, replete, apparently, with absurdities or contradictions, they do not set it aside as something unworthy of consideration, but they dissect it into its various parts. They analyze it with critical shrewdness. They separate the chaff from the wheat. They accept the portion that is confirmed by other and incidental evidence as a trustworthy addition to history. What is undoubtedly false they receive as a myth and either reject it altogether as an unmeaning variation of a legend, or explain it as the expression of some symbolic idea which is itself of value in a historical point of view. 
That lamented student of ancient remains, George Smith, late of the British Museum, in speaking of the cuneiform or wedge-shaped letter inscriptions dug up in Mesopotamia and the legends which they have preserved of the old Babylonian Empire, said, and the footnote is from Chaldean Account of Genesis, page 302, and footnote, With regard to the supernatural element introduced into the story, it is similar in nature to many such additions to historical narratives, especially in the East. But I would not reject those events which may have happened, because in order to illustrate a current belief or add to the romance of the story, the writer has introduced the supernatural. It is on this very principle that the iconoclastic Masonic writers, such as Hugin and Woodford, pursued their researches into the early history of Freemasonry. They did not reject those events related in the old legends, which have certainly happened, because in them they also find mythical narratives. They do not yield to the tendency which George Smith further says is now too general to repudiate the earlier part of his history because of its evident inaccuracies and the marvelous element generally combined with it. It is in this way, and in this way only, that early Masonic history can be rightly written. Made up, as it has been for centuries past, of a mixture of historical truths and legendary invention, it has been heretofore read without wise care. Either the traditional account has been wholly accepted as historical, or it has been wholly rejected as false, and thus, in either case, numerous errors have been the result. As an example of the error which always results from pursuing either of these methods of interpretation, one of which may be defined as the school of gross credulity, and the other as that of great skepticism, On the one hand, too easily satisfied with weak evidence, and on the other, but slowly admitting strong proof. Let us take the legend of the temple origin of masonry. That is to say, the legend which places the organization of the institution at the time of the building of the temple at Jerusalem. Now the former of these schools takes for granted the whole legend as true in all its details. That school recognizes King Solomon as the first Grand Master, with Hiram of Tyre and Hiram of Biff as his wardens, who with him presided over the craft, divided into three degrees, the initiation into which they claim was the same as that practiced in the lodges of the present day, or at least not very unlike it. Thus Dr. Anderson, who was the first to publish this legend and the theory that is founded upon it, says in the second edition of his Constitutions that Hiram Abiff, in Solomon's absence, filled the chair as Deputy Grand Master, and in his presence was the Senior Grand Warden. And again, that Solomon partitioned the fellow crafts into certain lodges with a master and wardens in each, And lastly, that Solomon was Grand Master of all Masons at Jerusalem, King Hiram was Grand Master at Tyre, and Hiram Abiff had been Master of Work. The modern rituals have made some changes in these details, but we evidently see here the original source of the legend as it has been generally believed by the fraternity. Indeed, so firmly convinced of its truth are the believers in this legend that the brand of the faithless is placed by them only on those who deny or doubt it. On the contrary, the disciples of the one school, whose skepticism is as excessive as the credulity of the former, reject as untrue everything that tends to connect Freemasonry with the Solomonic Temple. To the king of Israel they refuse all honor, and they deny with contempt the theory that he was a Masonic officer, or even a Freemason at all. One of these skeptics has gone so far as to attack the memory of the Jewish monarch with unnecessary and unmerited abuse. Between these two parties, each of which is led astray by the intemperate zeal, come the iconoclasts, impartial inquirers who calmly and earnestly seek for truth only. These do not accept, it is true, the authority of the temple legend in its present form. They deny that there is any proof which a historian could, by applying the just laws of criticism, admit as sufficient evidence. 
that Freemasonry was organized at the building of the Temple of Solomon, and therefore they look for its origin to have been at some other time and under different circumstances. But they do not reject the myth connected with the temple as being wholly unworthy of consideration. On the contrary, they respect this legend as having a symbolic meaning whose value cannot be overestimated. They trace its rise in the old constitutions of Freemasonry. They find it plainly mentioned in the legend of the craft, and they follow it to its full growth in the modern rituals. Thus, they note the influence that the story of the temple and its builders has exerted on the inner construction of the order, and hence they feel no disposition to treat it, notwithstanding its historical inaccuracy, with contempt. They know what an important part the legends and symbols of Freemasonry have performed in the progress of the institution. They are aware how much its philosophic system is indebted to these factors for all that is peculiar to Freemasonry. Therefore, they devote their literary energies not to the blotting out of this or any other myth or legend, but to the search of how and when it arose and what its real meaning is as a symbol or what foundation as a narrative it may have in history. And thus, they are enabled to add important items to the mass of true Masonic history which they have gathered. In short, the theory of the iconoclastic school is that truth and authority must always and in the first place be sought, that nothing must be accepted as historical which has not the inner and outer evidences of historical verity, and that in treating the legends of masonry, of almost every one of which it may be said, se non e vero e molto ben trovato, and the footnote says, Bruno in his Gli Eroici Furori from 1585, which translates to if it is not true, it is very well invented. We are not to reject them as mere fables, but as having some hidden and esoteric meaning, which, as in the case of all other symbols, we must diligently seek to discover. But if it be found that the legend has no symbolic meaning, but is simply the crippling of a historical fact, we must carefully remove the false growth and leave the body of truth to which it has been added, to have its just value. Such was the method pursued by the ancient philosophers of Greece and Rome, and Plato, and Exagoras, and Cicero explained the apparent absurdities of the early myths by treating them as parables. To this school of interpretation we have for years been strongly attached, and in the composition of this work we shall adopt its principles. We do not fear that the claims of Freemasonry to a time-honored existence will be injured by any historical criticism. Although the era in which it had its birth may not be admitted to be as remote as that given to it by Anderson or Oliver. Iconoclastic criticism cannot lower, but will rather elevate the character of the institution. Such criticism will free it of absurdities, will often explain the cause of the illogical, will purify the unreal element, and confine it within the strict domain of history. It was a common reproach against the great Niber that he had overthrown the whole fabric of early Roman history. Yet Dr. Arnold, the most competent of critics, has said of him that he had built up much more than he had destroyed and fixed on firm historical ground much that modern skepticism had rejected as fables. Following such a method as that pursued by the most learned of modern historians, it will be necessary for a faithful and thorough inquiry of the history of Freemasonry to carefully separate the two periods into which it may naturally be divided, the historic and the prehistoric. The historic is the period within which we have genuine documents in reference to the existence of the order. The prehistoric is the period within which we have no such records and where we have to depend wholly on legends and traditions. And that concludes Chapter 1, Prehistoric Masonry. Stick around for Chapter 2, The Legendary History of Freemasonry. 
Thank you for listening. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a comment. We enjoy hearing from our listeners. If you really like what you heard, share this podcast with your friends and lodge members. Visit us online at solomonstaircase.org.